We are Ezekiel 19. It's not a real long chapter, but there's a definite break between 19 and 20. So I wasn't going to try and tie in anything from from 20. But um, as we're looking this over, it, it took a little while looking this one over to figure out, all right, why is this here for us now? So we'll... Uh, We'll endeavor to see where we can get with this. Ezekiel 19, verse 1. Moreover, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel and say, What is your, what is your mother? A lioness? She lay down among the lions, among the young lions. She nourished her cubs. She brought up one of her cubs and he became a young lion. He learned to catch prey and he devoured men. The nations also heard of him. He was trapped in their pit and they brought him with chains to the land of Egypt. So we have gone on to another allegory to talk about the condition of Israel. And now Israel is likened to a lioness. And the cubs, of course, are the kings that would uh, that have come up over the time. It says that she lay down among the lions. And it, what this uh, seems to be typifying is the fact that Israel was, uh, as other places put it, playing the harlot with other 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 nations bringing in their gods, and they were becoming more like the nations around them than they were supposed to be themselves. And so the young lions that, that grew up, they learned to catch prey and to devour men. So they're learning some of the bad traits of the nations that are around them. But this is a particular young lion that it is speaking of. And, uh, well, I, just in your, your outline there, the lionesses, they represent... The lioness, I'm sorry, represents the royal line of David. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor our lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. (laughs) Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and the top of the throne was round at the back. This is the throne that Solomon made. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat and two lions stood beside the armrest. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. Now, of course, this throne is not made for comfort. You don't make a chair out of ivory and cover it with gold for comfort. So it's just something you're going to sit on for a brief period of time and that'd be it. But you can see all the the lions that are involved with all this. So the first cub is what is being talked about here. That is not at all the first king that came out of Israel. This would be, the first cub would be Jehoaz. He was the son of Josiah and he became king in 609 BC when Pharaoh Necho killed Josiah at Megiddo. Uh, now Jehoaz became king instead of his older brother Jehoiakim. Necho carried Jehoaz off to, to Egypt where he, where he died, having only reigned for three months. So what happened with this is that Necho came and Josiah died. Now Josiah was getting into some rebellion, getting into some bad things he wasn't supposed to be doing, and uh, didn't listen to God when Necho said, hey, I'm on a mission from God. And he says, no, you're not going to come near here. And he went out and attacked him and he died. And God said, because of the repentance of Josiah, he wasn't going to bring the punishment during his day, but his day is now over. And so now the punishment was going to come. And so the first of it came from Egypt, in which they came and they killed him. 
but they uh, didn't necessarily conquer the land. They just uh, uh, beat the army, and he went on to do what he was supposed to do. But then, and three months later, he came back to the land of Israel, the land of Judah. And during that three-month time, the people of Israel had decided that they wanted to make um, Jehoaz king instead of his older brother Jehoiakim. Now, we've talked about this before, but there are two different uh, camps. There are two different ways to look at this. If we were to relate it to something today, you could basically say there's Republicans and Democrats in the in the field here, and some of them see themselves as Republicans and some see themselves as Democrats. So... <laughs> And maybe that would give us an idea of uh, of what's you know the two two ways of looking at it. One side wanted to go in the way of Egypt, and the other side wanted to go in the way of Babylon. They wanted they both wanted to side with somebody. And so what it's thought was is that the people overall their their opinion was to be on Egypt's side. And so of the sons that were eligible, they decided to pick one who was more sensitive to the things of. Um, I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong. They were More of them were going in the way of Babylon, or at least the ones that were in power were going in favoring Babylon over Egypt. And so when Necho comes back and he finds this particular guy in there, somehow he either knows him, it becomes known to him, or through questioning, whatever it is, that he determines that this guy is more on Babylon's side than his own side. And so he gets rid of him. He takes him out of the position, and he takes the older brother... And puts him in place. And that would be Jehoiakim. So Jehoiakim reigns in place of Jehoaz. And Jehoaz is taken to Egypt. Which is what the uh, allegory says. Now this isn't a prophecy. He's not prophesying this to happen. This has already occurred. And he's just giving it into a different a different story. So that they, they hear it a different way. So. We, we still have this Egypt and Babylon battle is going on. In Jeremiah 22, verse 10, Weep not for the dead, nor bemoan him. Weep bitterly for him who goes away, for he shall return no more, nor see his native country. This is a prophecy uh, uh, that was given as, as far as Jehoaz was concerned, that he would he shall not return to the land anymore. He was going to be going away. Nor will he see his native country. For thus says the Lord concerning Shalom, the son of Josiah. Now, Shalom was his initial name. When he was born, he was called Shalom. His name was changed later on. Either when he became king, they changed his name, which sometimes would happen. But he was called Shalom at the, his time of birth. Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who reigned instead of Josiah, his father, who went from this place. He shall not return here anymore, but he shall die in the place where they have led him captive and shall see this land no more. That's Jeremiah's prophecy. Regarding him. Now being for the Babylonians or for the Egyptians did not wait, make one for God. Now God was saying you need to be on the side of the Babylons. That's what the prophecies were coming from Jeremiah and from Ezekiel. You need to be on the side that favors the Babylonians because this is, this is the direction that you're going. But of course, whenever God says, you know, do it this way, you got people who go different. And so there's people who's going to go to Egypt. And they went aside with Necho. Now Necho lost this uh, battle between him and Babylon. And so Babylon is getting stronger and uh, Pharaoh is getting weaker. 
Uh, let's see. This pick up at verse five. When she saw that she waited, that her when she saw that she waited, that her hope was lost, she took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. So when that one was gone, they took another one and made him the the king. He roved among the lions and became a young lion. He learned to catch prey. He devoured men. Same thing we heard from the other one. He knew their desolate places and laid waste their cities. The land with its fullness was desolate by the noise of his roaring. Then a nation set against him from the provinces on every side and spread their net over him. He was trapped in their pit and they put him in a cage with chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of East. Of Israel. Now, some suppose that this is Zedekiah, but Zedekiah is actually dealt with later on, so it would be very doubtful that he would be the one. He was the last of the kings of Israel. But even uh, Ezekiel did not see him as a legit king. If you remember over in chapter 1, right off in the start, he called him the prince. He didn't call him the king, even though he was in that particular position. This is probably not Jehoiakim. And you'll see his story. Let's, uh, let's read him over. In 2 Kings 23, verse 34, Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of his father, Josiah, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and went to Egypt, and he died there. So Jehoiakim gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. So he was 25 years old when he became king. It's not too young, not too old. <clears throat> and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebuda, the daughter of Padiah of Ramah. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all his fathers had done. Now after Josiah dies, every single king does evil. Whether they reign for three months or 11 years is this one. Every single one of them was evil. How evil can you be in three months? I don't know. But <laughs> God had never had anything good to say about any of them. After Josiah, they're all evil. In 2 Kings 24, verse 1, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, bands of Moabites, and bands of the people of Ammon. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he which he had spoken by his servants, the prophets, surely at the command of the Lord, this, this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed, for he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers. Then Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. There's actually no ingenuity of names it seems with the people of Israel after Josiah goes away. They are so similar to each other. Even when they go out and they get a name, they still seem to be be very much in that way. So, what we have here is that uh, first off, Jehoahaz, he, was, he became king after Josiah uh, was died. He was put in there by the people. And then when Necho saw that he didn't like him as being king, so he installed Jehoiakim as king. Now he submitted to to Babylon. This is the guy who's more favorable to the side of Egypt, and for some reason when when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came into the land and, and uh conquered it, apparently he didn't burn it or destroy it or all that, but he, he they became their subjects. And so they um he served him and then after uh 
he rebelled, I think, after three years. He served him for three years. So of the eleven, he was serving the Babylonians for three years. And I believe it was in the ninth year of his reign. He reigned for eleven years. I believe it was the ninth year was when he rebelled against Babylon. So that would probably mean somewhere around year six is when he came into um, submission to Babylon. So you have a five, six-year period there where Egypt and Babylon are battling. And apparently they had... Uh, Babylon had gained more of the ascendancy in that particular time. So this this second lion here, as we said, some probably suppose him to be Zedekiah, but probably not because he's he's uh, done later. Then Jehoiakim, now he was the next one, and he reigned for a good long time, but it doesn't seem to be him either. In, the, in those days, we have... Uh, Jehoiachin, who came and reigned after him. In Jeremiah 22, verse 18, Therefore says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, my brother, or alas, my sister. They shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. Now, the reason I say it's probably not Jehoiakim is simply because Jehoiakim, after he rebels against Babylon, Babylon comes and they build a siege wall against Jerusalem. Now, these sieges take uh, years sometimes. And this one took a couple of years. And so the food, the supplies began to dwindle in the city and, you know, a lot of nasty things were going on. Well, the people got mad at them for rebelling. And so they killed him. And so he's dead. And so they take his son, Jehoiachin, or Jehoiachin, Jehoiakim. I mean, that's what I mean. There's just no no, uh, variety here. And they took his son Jehoiachin and put him in his place. This is probably the second cub. Because the, the one before him, he dies in the city and that's not the, the prophecy what's going on. He says the, in Jeremiah, he says they won't even mourn for him. The people, his own people won't even mourn for him. Obviously the Babylonians are not going to mourn for him because he rebelled and made him come all the way down here and, and, uh, use all this time and men and equipment. So Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim is probably the, the guy. He's also the nephew of Zedekiah. Now, he would be captured and taken off to Babylon. This is most likely the one. So he was king for about three months. You said he, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In three months, he did evil. And apparently, the only thing we have of note that he did during that three months was he assessed his situation and decided they couldn't win and they surrendered. And so he walks out, him and all the royal family, and uh, some of the princes, and they walk out to the king of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they surrender, turn over the city, and that's why the city is not destroyed because they surrendered it. And so he came on in. Nebuchadnezzar comes on in, and he's the one who makes Zedekiah uh, king at that time because the guy they had, he let stay in. He decided to rebel against them. So Zedekiah comes in. Now Zedekiah in Ezekiel is going to be dealt with later on. So Jehoiachin is probably the one because he's the one who's captured, and he's taken off to Babylon. He's taken off to Babylon, he's put in prison, and he stays there for many years, but not all the years of his life. There was a, a king, I forget his, uh, somewhat forget his name, uh, Evil uh, Murdoch or Mer- Mer- something like that. Uh, he came up after that, and he looked upon him favorably, and actually uh, brought him out of prison and gave him a more prestigious position at the table of the kings that would be that were eating there. And looked upon him very, very favorably. So his, the end of his life was very, very good. 
and it's far better than the, the rest of it. But that is as the prophecy goes. Let's read that over one more time. Verse 9. They put him in a cage with chains and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him in nets that his voice should no longer be heard on the mountains of Israel. Now, of all the kings that we have here in the end, this is the only one who really fits that. Again, this is not a prophecy. We're not trying to make prophecy fit into what happened. He is just given a story of all the things that have already occurred and what has happened. Remember, Zedekiah is the king now, so these previous ones have already gone. They've already done. And we, let's see. Oh, I gave you a, I had to cut all this out of your outline, but this is just kind of a history on it. And I gave you the verses for it, which we read some of them already. But you will see, uh, I gave you a little bit broader spot here. First Kings 23, 28, all the way up to 24 and 20. And you can even go further than that and see more about Zedekiah. But again, the people made Jehoahaz king, though he was not the oldest son. Three months later, Necho makes the older brother Jehoi- Jehoiakim king, who reigned for 11 years. He is not one of the cubs. Jehoahaz is one of the cubs. Jehoiakim is not. Uh, became Nebuchadnezzar's vassal for three years. But then he rebelled. And so uh, Babylon invade again. And Jehoiakim is killed by his own servants. They make Jehoiachin king, the son, his son in his place. But he surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar and is taken to Babylon. So that's the cubs. So we had a total of three of them in there. And we're only talking about two. And Zedekiah doesn't really count. Uh, again, Ezekiel does not see him as, as legitimate. Now the um, the son Jehoiachin, when he rebels, is apparently there's under under he was under some pressure from the people in the in there. Probably not all of them, but enough of them put him under pressure to rebel against Babylon, and they sided with Moab, Edom, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon, and they thought all that group was going to be better than Babylon, and they were wrong. So, let's go on to Ezekiel 19 and verse 10. Your mother was like a vine and your bloodline planted by the waters fruitful and full of branches because of many waters. She had, uh, uh, she had strong branches for scepters of rulers. She towered in stature above the thick branches and was seen in her height in the dense foliage. So we're back over to the vine. You remember we had the vine over in uh, chapter 15? And I believe it was chapter 17 we had the vine. But your mother was like a vine in your bloodline, planted by the waters, fruitful and full of branches because of many waters. So she was planted in a place where there was many waters that came over and it made her strong. And she had strong branches for scepters of rulers. If you are going to have scepters, if you're going to have rulers, they must come off of strong branches. If there are weak branches, they will not produce the type of leaders that are needed to be the king. So if you are the enemy and you want to pull Israel down, what you have to do is weaken the vine. And if you can weaken the vine, that will make the branches weak. And if you can make the branches weak, they won't be able to support the scepter or the rulership. And so that's what the enemy had been trying to do. So she had strong branches for scepters of rulers. She towered in stature above the thick branches and was seen in her height amid the dense foliage. So with the, the lioness cubs, we talked about them, but now they're replaced with the vine and its branches. 
Verse 12, but she was plucked up in fury. She was cast down to the ground and the east wind, remember we talked about the east wind, I think it was last time, dried her fruit. Her strong branches were broken and withered. The fire consumed them and now she is planted in the wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. Fire has come out from the rod of her branches and devoured her fruit so that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation and has become a lamentation. So now she's planted in the wilderness. She was planted in a place where there was rivers. She had lots of water. Now she's in the wilderness. There's no water there. The lack of water is going to make these branches become weaker. They can't support the the, uh, the rulership, the scepter. Fire cons- has consumed them. They're in a dry and thirsty land. And see, this is what the enemy always tries to do. He tries to get us away from the sources that are feeding us. He tries to get us away from the water. Get us away from a place where we're producing fruit. And if he can do that, then the things that we're supposed to do we can't do anymore. And that's what happened with the, with this. And so he's trying to give them the, the picture. Just, you're looking at your situation right now. We can't support a king. A king doesn't seem to have the strength that they used to be able to have. You don't have the, the kings like David, like uh, Jehoshaphat even, or uh, Solomon. Of course, Solomon brought in a whole lot of the trouble, but for a long while he was, he was quite a substantial king. He was a good, good strong king. And of course, David, as well. And this is what the enemy will try and do. He tried to do it here with Israel because he knows if I can get the vine to to be weak and the branches weak, then the nation will fall. And that's what he needed to needed to do. This is why the Paul's always telling us to be praying for our leaders, because the temptation for our leaders is to get away from the word. Now you look at where our nation was 30, 40 years ago. Nobody got away from the Lord. Even the people that uh, that didn't believe so much in God still would talk about things and would never try and steer the nation away from the Word. But over the years, we've seen more and more of that going on to where things that uh, you wouldn't even have thought would be challenged are challenged. Uh, prayers have been offered in Congress. And they've even come under attack. And then they wanted to branch it out to, to other people. Um, I've heard some states have gone in a direction that they're bringing in prayers, not just from uh, Christian pastors, but uh, they're going off into other other uh, ones as well. Some Muslims are, are coming in and they're offering the prayers and they're just going all around the place and, and getting all different people to come on in and to pray. Well, see, that's a that's a far cry from what it was. Our nation has always been a place where you can you can worship other gods if you want to, but we as a as a nation were worshiping God. That was in our founders. Our founders put scriptures in all the buildings. And all the public places where we met, all this was, was going on. They're the ones who instigated, or who started prayers before Congress. Before Congress started, they would open a prayer. Of course, back in those days, you know, back in the, the days when they were founding this, this thing, they didn't just, uh, open a prayer. That, you all know that one? They didn't just open up and just say, uh, hey, you know, let's, uh, God bless us and, uh, <laughs> help us to do good things. They had a Bible study and prayer, I mean, it would go on for an hour or two. And then they would be done that and they would go on with the business of the, of the country. Uh, nothing like that is going on anymore. So once they got away from the water, it says the fire consumed them. And then she got planted in the wilderness. Now that of course is talking about her being exiled. 
Now, this exile is going to come about. This, they're not fully exiled just yet, but they're going to be, and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And everything is going to be, be devoured. She, as a, it says here that fire consumed them, and now she is planted in a wilderness in a dry and thirsty land. Fire has come out from a rod of, of her branches and devoured her fruit, so that she has no strong branch, a scepter for ruling. This is a lamentation, has become a, a lamentation. She has come to the place of almost dying. That vine is barely able to support life, let alone a king. And it's in a desolate spot. She's been trampled. Fire has come down. And, and barely alive. But God doesn't let her die. He's, he's, he sees the vine that's down there. And it's not dead yet. And he didn't let it die. He's going to bring it back. And he's going to plant it back where it was. But of course he talks about those things more in the later times than he does now. Now this... Uh, talk about being planted in the wilderness. This is going to be the complete exile to Babylon, which happens in 586 B.C. And Jerusalem is fully destroyed. This is because of the people's rebellion. The vine was going to be uprooted, stripped of its fruit, and caused to wither and consumed by fire. Now it says that no strong branch was left to support a ruling scepter. Now this is going to change because a ruling scepter is coming out of Judah. And it's going to reign forever. We know that to be Jesus. So this vine went from a place where it could flourish to a place where it could almost not survive. Now Zedekiah is eventually going to come to this this place and he's the one who's king right now while Ezekiel and Jeremiah are giving these prophecies. But he's not seen as a true or as a strong leader. Now this, this chapter concludes the prophecies that began back in chapter 12. 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 here. This is about the fall of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. And in those chapters, in those prophecies, he gives us five reasons for why this all happened. I summarized it in one word, but I'm going to give you more if you want to write it down. But we're just giving you the summary. Five, five main reasons. There may be some other minor ones in there, but there's five main reasons in all these prophecies that Ezekiel gave for why all this is happening. The first one, well, I put it in the in the past tense here, rebelled. They rebelled. They were they had a failure to submit to God's chastening, and they rebelled when his when the the words came to uh, to return to God. They rebelled against the words that were given to them. So God had chastened them to try and bring them back and they said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. God called them back said, come back and restore worship. No, we're not going to do that. So there was a rebellion against them and that, of course, is the, uh, easy, the first easy thing. The second one is rejected. They rejected divine revelation. They ignored the true prophets and listened to the false ones who said only what the people wanted to hear. They rejected divine revelation. They ignored the true prophets and they listen to the false ones. Boy, can you see how that's happened at other times in history? We rejected the divine revelation. God is speaking. No, I don't like that one. We ignored the true prophets and listened to the false ones. Now, of course, in the New Testament, Paul is exhorting and saying that in the latter days, this is going to happen even more, but it was going on in his day. People were rejecting the true and accepting the false. It went on in Jesus' day. It went on in times before Jesus. 
and it went on in time between Paul and now. So the rejection of the, the true word is not anything that's new. We just know that in the end times it's going to be even more, more, um, uh, it's going to occur more often. But we have to make sure that we determine what is the divine revelation. And whether I like it or not, I got to listen to it. Because I may not like it. You ever had a word from God that you just didn't like? Just because you didn't like it doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to it. If it comes from God, then we need to listen. What happens is sin gets us, pulls us in and it changes our way of thinking. And my way of thinking is of such that I'm in line with that false teaching, with that false idea of God, of what God wants, to the point that I think I'm doing what God wants but I'm not. These people thought they were doing what God wants. Well, this prophet over here, they say that uh, Babylon is not doing what God wants and that God's going to throw this thing off and that we're going to be restored. I believe it was two years they were. They kept talking about. Two years is all going to be over. And they were hanging on to that because they wanted it. We can get so, so tuned in to what we want that when the Word of God comes, if it doesn't line up with what we want, we reject it. And that's why we had to be careful. They were not. And this, this was a problem for them. The third one was reliance. They were relying on foreign alliances for security rather than God. When we start to rely on other things other than God, we're having a problem. And we saw this a number of different times. Right now, you got one group, we want to rely on Egypt. No, no, we want to rely on Babylon. No, 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 we can't rely on Babylon, we got to rely on Egypt. But in nowhere does, do they want to rely on God. But that's what they, they needed to do. You remember the uh, other kings that would come along and they would hire cer- certain ones to, to come and to help them. And sometimes it even worked. The enemy went away. Remember one time the enemy went away and the prophet God came out and said, So? <laughs> it's a whole lot better if you would have listened to God. Here's the fourth one, unfruitful. They failed to be faithful. They failed to be fruitful as God had intended. God intended them to bear fruit. And they weren't doing it. So we see that when Jesus came up to the tree, it was unfruitful. Even though it had leaves like it was bearing fruit. But it wasn't. And so he came up to it and he cursed that, that tree. May no one eat fruit from you ever again. And we know the significance that was there for the nation of Israel at the time. They were as a nation displaying leaves as if they had fruit, but when you got there, there was nothing there. And that's what Jesus was, was calling, a, calling out. God expects us to, to bring fruit. Remember the vineyard? It was, it was put into some people's hands and they were supposed to bring its fruit to the owners. They said, no, we're not going to do that. It's all our fruit. Even though it wasn't their vineyard. God expects us to bear fruit. And that fruit, there's a whole lot in the Word of God that isn't, isn't just talking about going out there and get converts. Converts are great. And getting people to make decisions for Christ, that's a good, that is a fruit. That is something we brought over. But if that was the only thing that was fruit, then Jeremiah was, was unsuccessful. Ezekiel's unsuccessful. Those other ones that had absolutely no, no success at all. And then you go over to somebody like Jonah, who was very successful, but he wasn't exactly showing the fruits that he was supposed to be showing. And so the New Testament tells us about the fruit of, of love and how we're supposed to be, be walking these things. And so we should see the fruit of gentleness, kindness, 
All these different things should be coming out. We should be having the Spirit of God come out from us. The words that we say should minister to the hearers. These are the kind of fruits that we should have. Israel was not bearing those fruits because they were detached. Their vine had become detached from God. And the fifth and final one was unfaithful. And he had a lot to say about this one, didn't he? A long, there was a long history of unfaithfulness to God. And he called that out and used several examples of it. And there were some others that you can probably put in here in this list too, but these are the five main ones. They rebelled. They rejected. Their reliances were wrong. They were unfruitful. And they were unfaithful. None of these things were good. Now, good or bad people who take a position they have no legal claim or godly call to are not seen as legitimate by God. Just because somebody took the throne in the in the nation of Judah didn't mean that God saw them as legitimate. Zedekiah, we have nothing from the scripture that shows us that God ever saw him as legitimate. The words that Ezekiel brought seem to indicate that God didn't see him as legitimate. He was there, but God didn't see him as legitimate. Called him a prince, didn't cuss him out or anything like that. But, but called him a prince, but um, did not see him as a legitimate king. Now that was important. Zedekiah, see, Zedekiah in particular, he got out of the line that you remember the in the genealogy of Jesus. It goes all the way back to the kings. And when you had had uh, David, well, Solomon, of all the sons that David has, Solomon is the one that the scepter was with, which disqualified all the rest of them. Now the scepter was going to be passed to to him, and then when he passed it on, and then. Passed on again, and then passed on again, and then passed on again, and then passed on again. Each time it was passed on, that son became the lineage of Christ. And so the, the enemy wants to try and get the lineage of the kingship out from the le- legitimate branch. And so when Zedekiah comes in, this is Babylon being used by the enemy to try and establish the king from a line, though it was of David, it was not of the king line. And so when you, when you pull up Joseph, and you know, we'll get a little Christmas theme going on here. Uh, of all the men that were in the nation of Israel, the only ones that would qualify are the ones that can trace their lineage to the kingly line of David. Now once you get into the last king of David, the last king who was on the throne, not Zedekiah, but once you get to the last king, any of the sons that come from him, because the scepter was not put in any one of them, so any of them work. So you can take any of those sons and follow them on out, but you have to be able to go back to the last king of Israel. Which I guess in, in our example here would be um, Jehoiachin. He would be the last legitimate king that they had. And so any of his sons would qualify. But Zedekiah wouldn't qualify. And so that's why God didn't call him king or see him as legitimate. Does that make sense? And that's why the genealogies that are in Matthew are so important. Because Joseph could trace his lineage all the way back to authentic King David. So there were a lot of other men in there who could trace their lineage back. Joseph was not the only one. But they had to be able to, to do that. You couldn't just take any man out of Israel and have him be the father of, uh, you know, not the, 
uh, just because he married Mary, that gave him legitimacy to be in the lineage of, of King David. So that's why Zedekiah was such a problem. He didn't quite usurp it as we saw some other ones do, but he was not legitimate and God didn't see him as legitimate. Now for the um, kings of Israel, you'll notice that there are some who were who were recognized as king even though they had no legal claim. I'll give you a couple of uh, examples in there. You remember... Um, uh, um, just his name went right out for me. The guy with the golden calves. Can't even think of his name now. Know his name well. Jeroboam. Jeroboam had no legal claim to the throne because he was not a legitimate son of a king. But God called him to be king. And so he, because of the calling, he was put in that position. He was, he was not able to take on the lineage of Jesus Christ. But he was promised that his his uh, his throne would last if he would follow, and of course he didn't do that. And then after that, after he rebelled, then his house was condemned, and I think he'd only go four four generations, and then he was gone. And then God called another. And you remember uh, even Elijah. Elijah was called to to anoint, I believe it was Jehu, to be king. Well, he had no legitimate claim to the throne, but God gave him a calling. And so he, he was called to be king by God. And so once he answered that call and he took that position, that gave his son a legal claim to the throne. Does that make sense to you? So, so good or bad, people would take a position with no legal claim or godly call. That's why I put that godly call part in there. They're not seen as legitimate by God. Now, some of these guys that had a legal claim, they were the oldest of the sons, but they weren't good. They weren't good people. But apparently they didn't, didn't disqualify them from the legal claim. Isn't that interesting? Now, punishment, not reward, will await people who take a position that they have no legal claim to or godly call. There are a few times in Israel's history where people took the throne but they had no godly call to it. A few time, a few more times over in the northern tribes of Israel did that occur, more so than the southern tribe. But we saw with the queen mother when she came over, she killed all the legitimate sons and she uh, usurped the throne until um, Jehoiada came along and he uh, preserved one of the sons and then eventually got rid of her. But punishment will await them, not reward. Now think of some of those people who have assumed roles like a prophet, an apostle, such things, and they've shunned uh, any other role that God gave them. So God may have called them to one role, but they shunned it. Now I don't want that. I don't want to be in help, so I want to be an apostle. <laughs> and so they've gone on that way. I want to be a prophet. These seem to be the, the, the two main ones. People, you know, they, they want to declare something. To, they're going to declare themselves to be a prophet. Or they're going to declare themselves to be apostle. They have more prestige, I guess, than uh, than most of the, of the other things. But if God called them to be something different, then they've despised the call of God in order to do something different. And the enemy is always trying to get people to go after something they're not supposed to go after, because that puts them in a bad position, and they'll receive judgment instead of blessing. 
they'll receive punishment instead of the rewards that God would have for them for that particular position that they that they have. So we got to find out what is it that God's called me to, and we got to take that role and do it. But whatever role we have, I don't care what it is. If you're an usher, if you're in a helps position, you can become just as dissatisfied with what it is that you're doing as someone who's an apostle or a prophet. They can become dissatisfied. Well, I don't want to be a prophet this way or an apostle this way or a missionary here or whatever it might be. I want to be something else. Because the enemy is always trying to get you outside of your calling and to desire, desire something else. Don't give in to them. Stay with it. If God called you to be be one thing, you be the best thing that you can do. <laughs> do the best that you can do in that thing. And you give it your all. Because then when God calls you up, He says, hey, that's what I called you to do. You stayed there and you did that. You were faithful. Now these two kings were portrayed as lions in the allegory. But they never amounted to become lions. They became more like the nations around them instead of the type of lion that God had called them to be as the king of Israel. They became more like kings that were around them instead of the king of Israel that God wanted them to be. Because what they were called to was to be the king of God's nation. What they became was a king like everyone else. They didn't see being a king of God's nation as anything great. They didn't see that if I become king, that means that I am in direct lineage of the king, the Messiah, who is to come. If they were to, if they were to think about this, could you imagine being a king, being in the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and leading your people into idolatry, into rebellion against God, into killing his prophets? despising his word. Could you imagine that? But they did. So these two kings, God says in the allegory, he calls them like they were supposed to be, the lions, like we saw in the book of Genesis when it talked about Judah, when we saw as Solomon made that throne with the 12 lions that were up on there. They didn't become lions like Israel was. They became wild lions like all the ones that were around them where they devoured men. Failure to obey God as we know, as we know that He wills, as we know that He wants, it will result in a weakened life, a weakened ministry, and a lesser reward if we don't obey what we know. See, God has brought me into a knowledge of what I know of His Word. And I have to take myself and bring myself into obedience with what I know. If I don't, then I will weaken whatever ministry I have lessen whatever rewards I could have been walking in and my whole life will not be as strong as God had intended that's what happened with these kings that's what happened with the people of Israel if we have a failure to learn all we can and walk in the way we learn we will result the result the final result will be us becoming less than what we were intended. Just as they were called to be lions, they became something less than what God had called them to. Don't become less than what God calls you to. We have a knowledge of God up to now, but God desires that we press into the Word of God and we learn more. We find out more. 
And as we find out that more, we put that to work. And then we go and we find out more. Because knowledge or revelation is progressive. Until I get this revelation, I can't understand this revelation. And then once I get that revelation, then I can understand this revelation. You know, some of the things that God would call us to depend on a revelation we don't have yet. The only way we're going to get there is to keep pressing on from one revelation to another. An example of that would be the disciples. There was a revelation that that he was waiting for them to get. And until they got it, he didn't teach them things along those lines. But when Peter came up and made that statement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And from that point on, the Word of God said, he began to teach them about his death, burial, and resurrection. It was important for them to know it because as they went out as the 12 witnesses of his life, they had to know what the significance was of his death, burial, and resurrection. But he wasn't even teaching them that. Not until they had that revelation. Do you know there's some things that God needs you to know, but until you get the revelation that is before it, he can't give it to you? And if you don't get it, you can't, you won't be as, as effective in whatever it is that he's called you to. Revelation is important. In a weakened state like the vine came to, that vine was not able to support the scepter of rulership that that vine was supposed to hold. Do you know that when we come into a weakened state that we are not able to accept the scepter of rulership that comes to us as part of the body of Christ? That many are in the body of Christ who expect to rule and reign, but their vine has become weakened. They were once in a place of many waters and they grew and they flourished. But because of rebellion, because of the other five things that would go on in their life, because of those things, they have been removed themselves from the place of abundance, from the place of being able to flourish. And do you know how many times I hear Christians, not in this church, just, you know, other places, but I hear Christians talk about how they're called to rule and reign and rule and reign and inside I just know their life is empty. They don't have what's needed to support it. Just because you've been called to rule and reign doesn't mean that you will. Your life has to support that. Just as this vine did. This vine had no strength to support the scepter of rulership. Do we have the strength to support the scepter of rulership? You hear a lot of people, they make, they make, uh, confessions, they make declarations, but there's no substance to the life. There's no obedience, there's no fruitfulness. That they feel something, they're gonna do it. They're not trying to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Just whatever they feel. As they have more fruit of the flesh than they do with fruit of the Spirit. And that kind of lifestyle won't support the type of rulership that they declare that they have. And they're trying to command this thing to go and this thing to come and it doesn't doesn't work and it doesn't listen because the, the scepter of rulership is not supported in their life. This vine became weak. Pretty soon the vine couldn't even hold itself up let alone the scepter of rulership. It's so important that we grow in these areas. These areas where Israel fell We've got to keep at the forefront and make sure that we don't fall. 
We don't become unfaithful. We don't become unfruitful. We don't rely on other things outside of God. We don't reject His Word when it comes to us because that Word that comes to us is there to strengthen us. Even if it hurts, I'm going to receive it. And I'm not going to rebel when God chastens me and tells me, hey, get out of that. You need to move on. Don't be dissatisfied with the rivers that you're planted by. That's what Israel did. Got dissatisfied with these rivers. Look at what these other nations have. I like how they worship their gods. I don't, I think the way we're worshiping our gods is kind of boring. It says, you know, once a year we do this particular feast. They do a feast anytime they want to. And they have a lot more fun at their feast, I think, than we're having at our feast. And they became more, wanted to become more like the world. And so they began to bring in some of their, their practices. And they initially kept them away from the, places of worship of God kept them in the high places up in the secluded areas in the mountains but eventually it permeated the whole land and in Ezekiel's day he's given prophecies and he's saying it came all the way down and it was allowed into the courtyard of the temple of our God that's how far they had gotten now we can become dissatisfied with the rivers that we have coming into our life and bringing the, the Word of God to us and bringing life and bringing revelation, don't ever become dissatisfied with it. Seek after it. That is your, your lifeblood. That is what is causing you to grow and to, to prosper, to be able to handle and support that scepter of rulership that God has called each of us to. Because we're all called to rule and reign. But not all Christians can, can support that lifestyle. They want to. They can dream of it, but they're not to the place where they where they can. Don't follow in the way of Israel. Follow in the way that God has called them to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that even though this is a very negative prophecy about Israel and the things of where they had gone, we can see some positive things of where we can go in our life. That just as you called the kings to rule and there was a strength that was needed, You provided that strength in the rivers they were planted by. And Father, just as we are called to rule, you have given us what we need to operate in that. You have given us rivers of waters that come and strengthen us. I thank you, Father, for the waters that we have, for the people that are in our lives that help us, help us to grow. And that, Father, you want us to become fruitful, remain faithful, that the reward that we receive is a great reward. You desire to put great rewards upon us because great rewards come because of great service. I thank you, Father, for the service that you've called us to. And no matter what it is, no matter how big it may appear to the world or how small, it's what you've called us to. And we'll be content in doing exactly what you said that we should do. Thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.